0: Once again, good morning. Welcome to Village Church. My name is Hannah. If I haven't met you yet, I hope to do so after the service. Now, I think we have some extra kids with us this morning. Can you raise your hand if you're a kid and you're normally in Sunday school right now? Don't be shy. Raise them high. Okay. (laughs) See you, Eric. Um, So, I have a sermon for you first, and I'll just be honest and say kids' sermons are usually my favorite. Um, And I want to start with a question a non-rhetorical question. If you were having a party at your house, or if you were going to a party, what kind of treat would you absolutely hope would be there? What's your favorite kind of dessert or food to have at a party? Anybody want to share? Okay. Cake, amen. Anyone else have a favorite? Mine is chocolate, also cheese. If my son Isaiah were participating in this game, and I would ask him, what kind of treat would you want? He would say, all of them. That's fine too. We kind of expect to have treats at a party, don't we? This is true whether you live in America like we do, or whether you live in Egypt or Africa, whether you live today, or whether you lived 500 years ago. We expect to have treats and tasty food at a party because that's part of how we humans celebrate. That's part of what makes parties fun. Now, in our gospel reading this morning, we heard about a party Jesus attended where the treats ran out. They ran out of wine, which is kind of an adult treat, uh, but it's also an important symbol. Wine represents celebration and blessing. So Jesus was at a party and the wine ran out, and did you hear what he did in this story? Does anybody know? What happened when the wine ran out? What did Jesus do? He made more. He made more wine even than anybody at the party could even drink. It was kind of like he was saying, look, when I'm at the party, the treats will never run out. (laughs) And this is the first miracle Jesus ever did. Isn't that cool? He made treats for people. Now, if I were God, which I am not, but if I were God and I were getting ready to come to earth, I would probably want my first miracle to be something really important like healing people who are sick, or feeding people who are, you know, starving, maybe even raising someone from the dead. If I were God, I would want to do something that says, hello, I'm God, and I'm here to fix everything that is broken. But Jesus' first public work was to fix a party. It was to make treats for people. And in a way, this does tell us something very important about God and what he came to do it tells us what the world will look like when he has finally fixed everything that is broken. It will look like a party. It's gonna be fun. We will all be together and the treats will never run out. Jesus' first miracle in a way is telling us that he has come to save our joy. Now that's also one way to describe what we call the gospel, the good news. And a lot of times we talk about the gospel in terms of forgiveness of sins, right? We say Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, and that's absolutely true. But in the book of Hebrews, it says that even Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So his death and our forgiveness, all of these things make us ready for the party. In fact, Jesus kind of hints at this in his miracle, because he uses a special kind of water to turn into wine. He doesn't use the kind of water you'd normally drink, like water from a fountain or even from your kitchen sink. Jesus used water that was meant for ritual cleansing. It was special water that God's people used to wash their bodies, to symbolize purification from sin. So in a way, Jesus is saying, in order to fix the party, I need to wash you. I need to cleanse and purify you from sin because that's the ultimate barrier to your joy. And of course, this is part of what it means to be baptized. If you've ever been baptized or seen a baptism, it's a washing with special water that makes us ready for God's party. Now, we're only baptized once, but every single time we come to church, we do something to remember and to celebrate and to, in a small way, share in God's party. Do you know what it is? What do we do every week after the sermon? And I'll give you a clue, a really good clue. It involves eating something. <laughs> That's after the service. <laughs> but yes, we come to God's table here and we get special food and drink. In my family, we call this the bread of heaven. Because it's a small taste, communion is a small taste and a reminder of the great big party that Jesus will bring with him when he comes back. It's a party where the treats, maybe the suckers, will never run out. So I have a game for you during the sermon if you're interested during the grown-up sermon. Um, On your kids bulletin there's a blank sheet that I noticed and I would love it if you would draw a picture of what you think God's party might look like. What kind of food you think might be there, who you expect to see there, maybe what, it's, what you think it's going to be like. And then afterwards, you can show that to one of the, your grown-ups before you get a lollipop. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for making us your children, whether we are young or all grown-up. Thank you that we can still come and sit at your feet and learn from your word and eat from your table and I pray that you would send your spirit now to teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh-oh. Just puffing a little bit. Just puffing and make sure, there you go. Seth is my tech support, along with everyone else's tech support. Okay, can you hear me? Okay, so a few weeks ago, which is the last time we were together, our bishop was here, and he preached about the meaning of epiphany. That's the season that we're in. It's the time in the church calendar when we reflect on the fact that God not only took on flesh, but that he then let himself be known. He became incarnate, he took on a human body, and then he allowed himself to be found, first by the Jews, but also by the nations. He put a star in the sky to guide the Magi. Think about that. God invited pagan astrologers to his home in Bethlehem. He generously spoke to them in a language that they could understand, the language of the stars, in order to lead them to himself. But as Bishop Thad preached, epiphany is not only an event in the past. God's generous self-revelation is not merely a fact of history, although it is that. It's also a present and ongoing reality. God is the gift who keeps on giving. This means that whether you are just beginning to explore the Christian faith, or whether you've been following Jesus for as long as you can remember, you can expect and anticipate the joy of epiphany. You can expect God to make himself known to you more and more. Philosopher Esther Meek says, epiphany is insight that comes from beyond us as a gift. It is a gracious manifestation, a self-disclosure of the real. In other words, God is not withholding. He takes the initiative because he wants you to know him. This is why he opens the Gospel of John with the invitation to come and see. You want to know who I am, Jesus says to his first disciples, come and see. To the curious and incredulous alike, the Messiah offers not a list of bullet points, not a series of maxims or a philosophical treatise, but the invitation to encounter him. Come and see for yourself what God is like. And this is the backdrop for today's reading in John chapter two, when Jesus performs his first miracle. And we don't see it in the English translation, but in the original Greek, chapter two begins with a conjunction, and intentionally connecting us to the dialogue of the previous chapter where Jesus calls his disciples and invites them to come and see. So in a way, the miracle at Cana is a continuation of that invitation. It's a sign that helps us to see something of who Jesus is. It reveals, as John tells us in verse 11, it reveals his glory. Now John is a very symbolic writer, but he wants us to know this miracle story is not just a parable or a metaphor. Jesus actually performed a miracle in real time and space at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So he lists the specifics not once but twice first in verse one and again in verse 11. And this forces us to grapple with the fact that Jesus' first miracle was done for a couple of nobodies from nowhere. Cana was a poor, unimportant town, and these were likely poor, unimportant people celebrating a marriage. And Jesus' first act of supernatural power, the first miracle of his ministry, is to protect these ordinary, nameless people from shame to run out of wine at a wedding would have been a horrible disgrace to this family. So Jesus solves their problem without even taking credit for it. This is an unusual way to reveal one's glory, isn't it? But it helps us to understand that glory should never be confused with celebrity. Jesus isn't trying to get discovered here. He's not trying to go viral. He's simply manifesting his character. He's showing us that his glory comes even to Cana, even to places and to stories that will never make the news. Many of you know that for the last three months, I have been at home with a new baby. Maternity leave brought me out of public ministry and into a very private, very small ministry to a newborn. At times, I felt hidden Working for the welfare of someone virtually unknown to the outside world and who can't even talk back to me. And I'm an extrovert, so that was hard. But this was a profoundly religious experience because it reminded me that God is no respecter of persons. He gives himself just as generously to my nonverbal infant as he does to any one of us. And in fact, through her, through my tiny daughter, God has revealed his glory to me and to my family. He has shown me something of who he is and what he's like and how he loves as he's held us in these last few months. So for me, it has been a season of epiphany. In Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead, the Reverend John Ames says, Wherever your eyes turn, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Jesus comes, he manifests his glory to a Jewish wedding in a one-stop town. He comes even to you, even to me. But now let's look at how he comes. When he reveals his glory, who does he reveal himself to be? And the answer to that question is layered, but let's start with the obvious. Jesus provides wine for a wedding feast. Now on the face of it, this might seem like a simple supply chain solution. Wine runs out, Jesus makes more. But it's more than that because he instructs the servants to fill six water jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons each. So we're not just talking about enough wine to refill everyone's glass a few times. We're talking about almost 180 gallons of wine. It's an extravagant amount, and it's the good stuff. When the master of the feast tastes it, he says, aha, so you've been holding out on me. You've saved the best for last. In fact, you notice in this story that the master of the feast is kind of a clueless character. He doesn't ever discover where this wine comes from, and it would have been at least partially his fault that the wine ran out in the first place because it was his job to make the party run smoothly and to test all the food and drink beforehand. So by providing more wine and really by saving this party, Jesus is saying, I am the true master of the feast. I have come to prepare a table a table of fellowship where the wine will not run dry. Whatever you've been told God is like, or whatever you've perceived Christianity to be, this is an unambiguous picture of celebration, of joy, and, dare I say it, even fun. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, by turning the water to wine, Jesus reveals the whole purpose of his ministry. It's as if Jesus is telling us, Yes, I've come to do self-denial and to suffer and to be humbled, and you will, too, if you follow me. But those things are means to an end. The end is the feast. Do you believe that? Some of us have been well-trained in self-denial. Whether by habit or necessity, sometimes we focus so much on the call to carry our cross that we can forget what it's for. We can forget that God is not a taskmaster. He's a banquet master, and he prepares a table for you, for us. This is the gospel. It's the invitation to a banquet. Now, of course, in the here and now, we're still waiting to experience that banquet in its fullness, right? And, of course, we face hardship in the meantime. But Jesus' miracle at Cana manifests his character, and it helps us to understand how the psalmist could say, "'Lord, you prepare a table before me "'even in the presence of my enemies.'" Friends, even now, whatever you're living through, however the shadow of sin and death lingers, Jesus prepares a table for you. In the very presence of these, our ancient enemies, Jesus says, come to the banquet. Come and enjoy the good things that I have prepared for you. This is who he is, he's the master of the feast. So that's the first layer, the first way Jesus reveals himself in this miracle. But there's another character in the story that Jesus identifies with, perhaps even more closely, and the clue is in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the wine and did not know where it came from, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So we've seen that Jesus doesn't outright take credit for this miracle, but who does? The bridegroom. The bridegroom gets the credit for providing the wine. This is a wedding feast, after all, and Jesus chooses to perform his first miracle at a wedding to reveal that his ministry, his banquet table, is also to celebrate a marriage, the marriage of heaven and earth. I preached on this back in October from Genesis 2 because this is one of the main, major themes of the whole Bible. And here Jesus has arrived on the scene and we're at a wedding again. Now with the arrival of Jesus, in a very significant way, we understand that that marriage has already taken place because God has taken on human flesh. The incarnation itself is the marriage of heaven and earth because God has taken up residence in a body. But in the Bible, marriage is also used to describe the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people, with us. We saw this today in our Isaiah reading. Here's what he said You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the nature of the feast to which we are invited. It's a wedding feast where Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Now, what does that mean for us practically? That's a nice, maybe literary idea, but what difference does it make? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. If we accept that Jesus is the bridegroom, this recasts our whole relationship with God because it means that God doesn't merely want us to know him as king or lord or master, though he is those things. But the gospel is that God wants us to know him as a spouse. He invites us into a relationship of delight, of rejoicing, as Isaiah put it. The next time you go to a wedding, I want you to try something. At that moment when the doors open at the back of the room and everyone turns around to admire the bride, I want you to turn around and look at the groom. He won't notice, I promise, because he'll be totally caught up, totally transfixed by his bride. So turn, if you can, and see the way he looks at her. And when you see it, when you see that look of pure delight, I want you to think, that's how God sees me. That's how God sees his people. This might seem kind of, you know, Christianity 101, but I'll just speak from my own experience and say, it is hard to let yourself be loved like that. It's the work of a lifetime, because this isn't just about knowing it intellectually, remember? This is about encounter. Come and see, come and experience this love and let it change you. Catholic priest and writer Henry Nouwen wrote, for most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God and to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? The work of the Christian life is to let yourself be loved by God. This is where new creation begins and ends. It's why John introduces us to Jesus as the bridegroom here in his gospel. And it's why at the very end of his ministry, John writes again in the book of Revelation saying, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Because that's where this whole thing is headed. It's a feast where Jesus is both bridegroom and banquet master. Now there's one other way that Jesus reveals himself in this miracle, one more character in the story, as it were, that tells us something of who Jesus is. So briefly, I'll just share that. It's the wine itself. It starts when Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, the wine has run out. Bishop Robert Barron says that, more than simply stating a fact, Mary is functioning here as Israel in the prophetic mode. She's pointing out that God's people who are supposed to be overflowing with divine presence and blessing have run out of wine, so to speak. Mary is naming Israel's problem and anticipating Jesus as the solution. Now This also helps us to understand Jesus' response to Mary. Woman, my hour has not yet come. Now he's clearly not saying, you know, sorry mom, I can't do miracles yet because he turns around and does one right then. Rather, The hour Jesus is referring to here is the hour of his death, when he would spill his blood and become the wine, when he would become the provision for Israel's emptiness and failure. This is the hour that John mentions in chapter 12 as the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. So when Jesus reveals his glory in Cana, it's a hint of the glory to come. It's a hint of what would happen on the cross. And just like the wine at the wedding was made from water intended for ritual cleansing, Jesus' blood is the purifying agent that makes us ready for the feast. Jesus is the wine. He is the ultimate provision of God for you, for your failure, for your thirst, for your joy. And as the miracle shows us, God does not skimp on provisions. He is the resource that will never run out the cup that will never run dry. Friends, there is no scarcity at God's table. So if you are thirsty, come and drink. Come and see his radical generosity. Come and taste the wine. This is our role in the story. We acknowledge our lack and then we drink to the full. And then, brothers and sisters, we listen to Mary and we do whatever Jesus tells us her instructions to the servants, and their simple obedience in filling the water jars and bringing them to the master, these are the means by which Jesus performed his miracle in the first place. Sometimes Jesus asks us to do things that seem really hard, almost impossible. Sometimes he asks us to do things that seem very small and unimportant. Either way, we mustn't underestimate what he might do through us how he might transform our simple acts of obedience into occasions of his glorious self-disclosure. Remember, God wants to make himself known both to you and through you. And in whatever he calls you to do, whoever and however he calls you to serve, you can trust that the wine will not run out. Amen? Let me close with this as both a blessing and a prayer. These are John's words again from the book of Revelation in the very last page of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Lord, we thank you that you have come, and that you have given yourself without measure, and that you continue to do so every day. Help us to have courage, to acknowledge our thirst, and to drink, to receive from you and to do whatever you tell us, that others may come and taste this wine too. In your name we pray, amen.